Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Security Management Highlights Podcast. I'm your host, the security guy, Charlie Harold. My idea of, of leadership for executives really starts with leadership of yourself as a frontline employee, because frontline employees are probably doing the most leading. Bill Kotringer, PhD, is currently Executive Vice President for Cascade Security Corporation in Bellevue, Washington, and an adjunct professor of criminal justice at Northwest University. He has worked in the security industry for half a century and is author of numerous books available on Amazon. Yeah, there's a different thing because with these foreign fighters, they're really ideologically driven and they're fighting for ideology and they're not really fighting for pay like, like we would uh, consider with a mercenary. Scott Stewart is Vice President of Tactical Analysis at Stratford.com and Lead Analyst for Stratford Threat Lens, a product that helps corporate security professionals identify, measure, and mitigate emerging risks around the globe. We're still dealing with people who, in the course of a shoplifting incident, become violent, uh, or just people who come in and uh, get upset because things aren't going the way they want them to. So certainly, we uh, we have many trained, well-trained people in our stores to ensure that they um, can calmly work with the person and try to solve the problems, listen to what they have to say, hear them out. Sometimes that's all it takes to get a person to calm down and um, get get them to be happy once they leave the store. Alan Grego, CPPCFE, is past chairman of the ASIS International Retail Asset Protection Council and is currently Senior Retail Regional Security Manager for Microsoft. All that and more coming up on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Hi, Bill. Welcome to Security Management Highlights. Thank you. Today, we're going to talk about adaptable leadership skills. This is a very cool subject. Let's define it. What exactly is adaptability? Well, the version today that I'm following is, is focusing on three main areas. Um, the first being mental flexibility, having open-mindedness, <clears throat> being able to um, change approaches to people. People learn differently. That Some are visual learners, some are auditory, and some are feel it, kinesthetic. And so you have to have a wide repertoire to be able to speak to the person in their learning and information processing way. And another important component is emotional intelligence. And I can't speak enough about this because I've worked on this emotional intelligence way before Daniel Goleman started it. Um, We had to use this in counseling back in the early 70s. And by emotional intelligence, I mean things like empathy, being able to uh, understand another person's perspective, uh, sensing what they need from you, and being able to make an emotional connection with them. Using social, uh, using social skills, uh, mainly non-defensive communication is the key for all criminal justice, security people, all leaders to communicate with people non-defensively. And by this non-defensive communication, uh, started by Jack Gibb back in California in the early 60s, uh, we're talking about portraying yourself as an equal and not superior, being accepting and not judgmental, taking truth as tentative rather than uh, portraying that you know something to be for sure, certain empathy, the sensitivity towards others, and uh, being spontaneous rather than manipulative or strategic. This stuff is so spot on. I I can't tell you how many times I've used it unknowingly in my career. I've always just spoken to people like, uh, you know, with politeness for starters, right? That sounds odd to say, but basic politeness, you know, treat people with respect as human beings, you get a lot more out of them. 
Is this been? Yeah. Is this been? Uh, I don't know what the word would be. You know, quantified, measured, uh, tested. I mean, it, it's common sense to me. But uh, how do you sell this to somebody who's used to the the bright light interrogation type type of technique? Maybe. Well, it, I work with some investigators and do a lot of investigation work myself. And to get to the truth, you really do have to communicate in a non-defensive manner because if you communicate with superiority and certainty and all those things that cause defensiveness, you're not going to get to the truth. And so anybody that's really interested in getting to the truth and in, in interviewing or talking with people or studying a problem, coming up with a solution, got to be focusing on doing it in a non-defensive manner with the other person. And an, another key I'd like to hit upon is some likability research that I did as a psychologist teaching psychology at university level. I had all my students go out and ask people what made them gain a, an impression of liking a person versus unliking a person. And likability was quantified in that manner. And, uh, and I've done a lot of work with other researchers in California on um, school popularity uh, being related to their likability characteristics. And likability, uh, there was five things that seemed to surface as forcing a person or, or leading a person into liking a person immediately. And one was sense of humor. That was at the top. Uh, the others were being honest, uh, being a very good listener, showing empathy towards the other person and, and knowing what they need and uh, making that emotional connection. And so practicing these things, the, being likable with non-defensive communication is uh, uh, key. But now, how do you get there? <laughs> That's the question. And it's all about self-management. If you can't manage yourself well, your moods and your ego and your communication style and way of approaching problems and thinking and your perspectives, then you're just not going to succeed. So let's translate this backwards to leadership. My feel is that if you have these qualities, this makes you a leader. If you look at political figures, who gets elected president? Maybe not the best candidates all the time, but certainly almost all the time, the most likable. I think that's right at the top. And I think I think this really makes a lot of sense from a leadership point of view. If you can be this way naturally or through learned behavior, you're a receiver. People can transmit data to you and you can receive it. And once people feel they've been heard, this makes you very effective as a leader. Uh, absolutely. And my idea of, of leadership for executives really starts with leadership of yourself as a frontline employee because frontline employees are probably doing the most leading. I totally agree with that. Why do you think this is resisted? We see people that don't do this in public leadership roles. They do the opposite. <laughs> it creates tension. It creates friction among people and turmoil and all kinds of things you see on social media. I don't get why it's resisted when using it, even, let's say, in an artificial way. In other words, you know, you can learn this instead of being natural at it. Why do people resist it? That's an interesting question. And I, I think... Much of the time, we know how to be and we know what to do to be effective and successful, but we just don't do it. Or we do it, but we don't do it consistently. And another problem is, is that it's too easy, okay? It's all common sense. And, and people don't want to be told 
something they already know in common sense. They want something new, shiny, and uh, a gimmick. Another thing is that with adaptive leadership, gaining empathy is only the start because the, the rest of that is when you take your empathy and your connection with people and your understanding of their perspectives to compassion. And this is what uh, the Dalai Lama taught Daniel Goleman and all the other emotional intelligence uh, pioneers, that it was good to have emotional intelligence, but the end game of emotional intelligence is to lead you to be a compassionate person. And the Dalai Lama has spent a lifetime as a very unusual leader, uh, gaining insights from people from talking to everybody. And it's amazing how interesting people's lives are, their stories. My guest has been Bill Kotringer. He's talking about adaptive leadership skills. Bill, fascinating topic, and we could talk for hours, and maybe we should. Maybe we should come back and do a longer show. But thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Scott, welcome to Security Management Highlights. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Now, we're going to talk about foreign fighters today. I thought something completely different about this subject. I've done some research and not what I thought it was. Uh, define what this is for people. Yeah, Chuck, what, what we're looking at is, is citizens of, of one country that are going over to fight in conflict zones in other places. So in the jihadist realm, uh, there's been a long history of places like Afghanistan, uh, Kosovo, Chechnya, and of course, more recently, Iraq and Syria and Libya. Uh, but, but this can also uh, pertain to people of, of other ideological persuasions. So, for example, we, we have seen some white nationalists running over and, and fighting with some of the uh, white supremacist groups in Ukraine as well. Not a mercenary, by definition. Not necessarily, right? Different thing. Yeah, there's a different thing, because with these foreign fighters, they're really ideologically driven, and, and they're fighting for ideo ideology, and they're not really fighting for pay like, like we would uh, consider with a mercenary. Fortunately, this time around, uh, you know, kind of in the wake of, of the Islamic State uh, and, and their, their caliphate in Iraq and Syria, in the 90s, really, the foreign fighters are what gave rise to the Al-Qaeda movement. And uh, we started seeing Al-Qaeda uh, using these foreign fighters in attacks uh, in the United States, but also places like in Yemen. Uh, we saw them attacking us in, in Somalia with, you know, Black Hawk down, but also the East Africa bombings, uh, you know, in, in Kenya and, and Tanzania. We, we were kind of caught off guard the, the first time um, as these jihadists kind of spread out and started attacking things. But because of the lessons we learned that time, uh, the U.S. government and its allies are taking the threat much more seriously and are putting a lot more, uh, more resources to combating the problem this time. I, I did not realize there's so many layers to this. I mean, there's infighting. Some jihadists don't like other jihadists. That I mean, this is really, really interesting stuff. Now, you've kind of broken this down into a way for us to kind of mitigate this. You have three levels, awareness, ideology, and training. Uh, speak to those for us and let us know how that helps us become more aware of this situation here at home. Going back in, in my history, I was one of the first agents to travel overseas to uh, investigate the first Al-Qaeda attacks against the United States in Aden uh, back in 1992. And at that time, we just really didn't understand what the threat was. In fact, we thought those first attacks uh, were actually conducted by the Libyans, who had had a, a long history of conducting terrorist attacks against U.S. interests uh, throughout the region. 
Uh, but when we were over there doing our investigation, uh, we started looking at things. You know, this isn't how the Libyans operate. You know, this is not Libyan MO or tradecraft. And as we started looking more carefully at it, we said, you know, this is actually somebody that was trained by the CIA or, uh, you know, trained by somebody who was trained by the CIA. Through our investigation was that we had Yemenis who were returning from Afghanistan where they had fought with the Mujahideen against the Soviet Union. And they had indeed been, you know, received some training, uh, you know, from, from the West and from the U.S. So we kind of saw our own tactics uh, and techniques being turned against us at that time. And it was kind of a surprise and a shock. Of course, then later when we would have the, you know, the World Trade Center bombed in, in February 93, that was also a surprise to us. Um, but now we are very, very aware of the threat that's being posed. And, uh, you know, the U.S. government and its allies are putting a lot of resources towards combating the, fed, uh, the threat. So that's really where the awareness comes in and how that's helped to mitigate the impact, uh, you know, of, of the returning foreign fighters. On the ideological prong, that's where we talked about how some of these guys have become disillusioned. Um, you know, they decided that it, it wasn't what it was sold to them to be. Um, you know, they see Muslims killing predominantly Muslims or fighting other Muslims. And it's not necessarily this romantic, romanticized jihad that had been sold propaganda. We, we kind of have the, the training factor. And most of the guys that go over and become foreign fighters go through kind of a, a you know, jihadist or in some cases, white supremacist boot camp. You know, they'll be taught how to, you know, fire an AK, throw a grenade, maybe launch an RPG. Um, but they don't, most of them don't receive the, the kind of training in tradecraft skills that you need to be a real successful terrorist. Um, so they don't really get uh, training in operating in a hostile environment as far as operational security goes. They don't receive much training on surveillance, on, uh, you know, planning terrorist attacks or, or bomb making uh, when you don't have the materials that, that you have in a war zone. So as a bomb maker, you know, if you're in Syria or Iraq right now or Afghanistan or, you know, one of these other places, Libya, you have access to a whole lot of, of military ordnance, uh, you know, TNT demo blocks, artillery rounds, electric detonators, um, a, a lot of gear that you can use to make bombs. That is really different from say, you know, operating in New York or Los Angeles or Phoenix, where you've got to make everything from scratch pretty much. Uh, you know, these improvised explosive devices that we talk about. So when, when you have to create everything from scratch from through your detonators to your firing train, it's just much more difficult and requires a lot more training and skill. And fortunately, most of these folks uh, who are traveling abroad don't get that training. Where are we with enforcing the law on this? I'm assuming if you decide to carry another flag overseas and fight for somebody and come back and it's a foreign enemy that's probably against the law or something. I, you don't hear much about the people returning being prosecuted for this. Is, is this, is this what's going on? Well, fortunately um, in, in the case of an international terrorist group, a, a group that's been designated as an international terrorist group by the state department and the U S government groups like the Islamic state or Al Qaeda or a lot of their subgroups, you know, uh, uh, Al Shabaab say in, in Somalia, in those cases, uh, it's fairly easy if you can show somebody fought for a group or otherwise supported them uh, to, to bring the, the material support for terrorism statutes. And the U.S. government has been doing a lot of that in these foreign fighter cases. Um, however, if it's uh, you know a, a group that's not necessarily sanctioned uh, or recognized as a terrorist group, 
so some of the the foreign fighters that we see that have gone over to fight uh, with the Kurds against the jihadists uh, don't face that same sort of prosecution, uh, per, yeah, prosecution threat, or even the the white supremacists we see going to places like Ukraine to fight uh, there with Azov battalions and some of these other organizations. Yeah, in in the cases where we have people that have fought with uh, you know Kurdish militant groups or say the Azov battalions and some of the white supremacist organizations in the Ukraine are difficult to prosecute. If, if there was some sort of uh, payment, uh, certainly they will they will try to go after them using whatever tools they can. Um, and certainly as the, uh, I think, attention comes to these other foreign fighters, whether it's anarchists fighting with the Kurds or whether it's white supremacists fighting in Ukraine, I think we're going to see the U.S. government trying to use whatever uh, you know, predicate defenses they can to prosecute these individuals. Scott Stewart, always an interesting conversation. Uh, I learn a lot every time I speak with you, my friend. And we look forward to seeing you at GSX, right? You'll be at GSX this year. Absolutely. I'll see you there, Chuck. Thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thanks for having me. Take care. Alan, welcome to Security Management Highlights. How are you, my friend? I am doing well, and I appreciate you having me. We're going to talk today about the ASIS Retail Asset Protection Council, a very interesting vertical. Give us a little brief overview of what that's about. Okay. I have been a member of the council for about 12 years and a past uh, chair of that council. I find it very helpful for retailers, uh, even in the restaurant business, all types of retailers. We have many subject matter experts from uh, companies like Panera Bread, Walmart. Um, we have vendors from Axis LP Innovations. And uh, many of these people uh, have been with their companies and held leadership positions for 10 to 15 years. So if you're someone looking for advice in the retail sector, uh, we've got plenty of people to help out. And uh, in Connections on As Is, we have our own site and monitor it. So if you have questions and you want to post them there, we'll be looking. We also have uh, a LinkedIn site uh, that the council maintains. And um, uh, this year, we, besides magazine articles and uh, book reviews, we've also uh, been partnering with the Loss Prevention Foundation to put together an associate certificate in loss prevention. That uh, currently has been worked on and is with corporate headquarters of as is for finalization. So at some point, we hope to be able to offer that to members of the retail community at as is. Um, we have um, a lot to offer. We're also interested in taking on members. So if you're somebody who has uh, a real interest in working hard and volunteering, um, just go to as is. Uh, online.com and look for councils and uh, send in your application. Now, I noticed the title is Retail Asset Protection. I, that's one vertical market I never really got into, but we used to say loss prevention, different vertical. Am I correct? Or is it kind of merging into a new thing now? Yes, yeah, so vertical. I put in, uh, just put in asset protection. Um, but I have, it, just with this, with Microsoft, I uh, started out as an asset protection manager. Um, also, they changed uh, our name to loss prevention. And uh, now we have evolved to uh, what my title would be a senior uh, retail regional security manager. And we're focusing uh, a lot on life safety, uh, general safety in the stores, and um, overall um, kind of threat management for the retail business. 
So it's evolved a little bit and a little different than many other uh, how many other retail companies um, function, and uh, it seems to be working very well. And it's, it's a relatively new um, way for us to practice uh, loss prevention at Microsoft. So I like the way this this kind of definition has changed because asset protection really involves protecting your clients, your patrons, your employees. It's I think it's a better way to look at it. Because we can, we can always get another laptop. It's not good to have shrinkage. I get it. But with today's crazy world, having plans for evacuations during emergencies, reactive shooter things, I think is, is the right way to go. It, it for, at least for us, it's one of our biggest concerns. If you, you've heard uh, persons ask what keeps you up at night to security leaders and um, the fact that a, an attack, and I don't call it active shooter anymore. I call it an active attacker because you, we have... Um, many different types of attacks and not necessarily always using a gun. There's knives, there's bombings. Um, I have uh, some responsibility for a flagship store in London and people don't carry guns there, but you do have knife attacks, you have physical attacks and also bombings. So, um, but attacks uh, can pop up, they're not planned. You can look in, in um, social media and look for the warning signs of the pathway to violence as the Department of Homeland Security instructs uh, and sometimes you can notice a little bit uh, the red flags going into uh, planning of a person that's going to attack. But in the retail sector and shopping centers, public public places like that, it is mostly always uh, by surprise. We, we don't get a lot of uh, warning. So we spend a lot of time working individually with the stores to ensure that all of the store associates and management know how to evacuate. They know where to lock down, what the safe rooms are. They know what steps to take if that's not working, how to talk to the police if they have to call them, what to do once they evacuate. So there's a lot of emphasis. There's training programs that we have online, and a lot of that becomes very important to ensure the safety not only of our associates, but the customers, as you mentioned, the customers are a big asset to us. So we wouldn't just leave them uh, unattended in the event that there's an attack. I love this model. Uh, You know, back in the day, it was uh, fortification and protection. So we're going to put guards in stores and the guards somehow are miraculously not going to be part of the evacuation program. They're going to they're going to tell 500 people what to do. And I like your approach that we're training individuals to take charge of their own safety and security with proven plans and proven methods, it's it's just the right way to do it nowadays. I think you're correct there. It's That's a, a big uh, area of our expertise and our focus. We still have theft happening in stores. We, we're still dealing with people who, in the course of a shoplifting incident, become violent, uh, or just people who come in and uh, get upset because things aren't going the way they want them to. So certainly we... Uh, we have many trained, well-trained people in our stores to ensure that they um, can calmly work with the person and try to solve the problems, listen to what they have to say, hear them out. Sometimes that's all it takes to get a person to calm down and um, get get them to be happy once they leave the store. And if it, if it doesn't go that way, then we're also uh, teaching people what steps to take in order to ensure their safety. Do you find any challenges having properties all around the world between the different countries and regions and laws, is it difficult to coordinate this type of training? Do some countries allow you to do some things? Other countries don't allow you to do some things? Well, it, it is. I've, I've had experience in Australia and uh, London in Europe. Uh, I also, in the beginning of my career, went to China, and that was the biggest um, 
challenge to help understand how the Chinese culture and laws would interact with our unit into a, a bigger hypermarket. And um, so that would have been a bigger challenge. That it's not the same type of um, court understanding. You're in China. You're you're guilty to you prove yourself innocent. But um, because Australia and the U.S. are kind of based off of um, Great Britain's common law, they're they're pretty all they're they're pretty much very close. And and they are. Um, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty, and the court systems are somewhat similar. So, how we interact with the police department is also um, similar. We can call them, we can provide evidence uh, as needed, and uh, they're pretty quick to show up and very cooperative. Fantastic, Mr. Alan Grego, ASIS Retail Asset Protection Council. Alan, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, what a wonderful career you've had, and, and what great input to help people with your experience. I really appreciate you coming on Security Management Highlights. Thank you.